In today's episode about the school-to-prison pipeline, you will hear several terms that are commonly used in spaces centering racial equity and anti-racism. The first term is systematized. Becoming systematized means that a child has been placed in a facility away from their home because of juvenile or criminal justice involvement. These facilities include boot camps, detention centers, group homes, etc. Once a child is placed in any of these environments, the likelihood for continued involvement in the offending behavior increases significantly. Data indicates that once children are released from the criminal justice system, they are likely to return. Another term you will hear is restorative justice. According to the Center for Justice and Reconciliation, restorative justice can be defined as a theory of justice that focuses on repairing broken relationships rather than fixing broken rules. It is best accomplished through cooperative processes that allow all willing stakeholders to meet. This can lead to transformation of people, relationships, and communities. The final term is white supremacy. White supremacy is the deep systemic embodiment of beliefs and behaviors that center white cultural norms. If you are interested in learning more about this topic, consider checking out my first episode titled White Supremacy featuring Dr. Susan Hodges. I might be biased, but I thought it was a great episode. All of these are essential terms whose meanings are key to understanding our dialogue about the school to prison pipeline. I encourage you to do your own research so that you can formulate your own ideas and opinions around these critical topics. But of course, I'm always more than happy to discuss anything if you need someone to help you explore some of these complex ideas. Remember that solidarity is an act of resistance. We're here to learn and grow together. Let's start the show. All's my life I has to fight. All's my life I hard times like yeah, bad trips like yeah, Nazareth. I'm fed up, homie. You fed up, but if God got us, then we gon' be alright. Hey everybody, welcome back to What More Can I Say? This is Maria, and we're here with our fourth episode talking about the school to prison pipeline. Um, here I have with me a special guest, someone who whose opinion uh, about the school to prison pipeline I deeply respect and I think is extremely knowledgeable and has been a strong community advocate for not only people learning about and being conscious of the school to prison pipeline, but also um, advocating on behalf of people who are currently within prisons, making sure that they receive transitional support and things like that. First of all, can you tell us who you are? Uh, I'm Mark Perry. Okay. (laughs) Would you like to know more? It's up to you. You decide. No, I can tell you more. I, I, um, this is my what, seventh decade, eighth decade here? I'm 73 years old, been around for a while. Um, I really came of age in the late 1960s during, and, and, and I just embraced the, uh, the social and racial justice movements of the time, the, the uh, counterculture at the time. It was very different from what I grew up with. And 
I'm like, wow, this is the place to go. You got to do this. And like a lot of people during that era, we felt like we had no choice. We had to take apart the structures of U.S. empire uh, through various means. I chose some pretty radical ones. My uh, activism and organizing eventually uh, landed me in prison in California. Uh, <clears throat> I paroled out of San Quentin in uh, the very end of 1979. Uh, I was in L.A., paroled to L.A., and then uh, my family and I moved to Chicago in 1986. Uh, my reentry and my reintegration were challenging, uh, but once I got to Chicago, I found um, a job in an alternative high school, and uh, I was 37 at this point. And it was the alternative high schools in Chicago were set up for students who'd either been pushed out or dropped out of high school. And there were probably about 20 of them in the city at that point. And then th that motiv motivated me to actually uh, go back to school. So when I was 40, I got my BA from Northeastern Illinois University in criminal justice and alternative education. Um, and I was invited to join a, um, a graduate program at uh, University of Illinois in Chicago which uh, I did from like 90 to 96. So when I was 48, I earned my master's and doctorate in education. Um, in 1996, my family and I moved here to Seattle. Uh, and starting in 2000, for um, the past 20 years up until recently, I was a teacher and a principal at Nova High School in the Seattle Public Schools. Uh, I officially retired in um, July of 2020. And really what I'm working on now is figuring out what am I doing in this next chapter of my life. Thanks for sharing that. Our other guest today is someone who I have a great deal of respect for. Um, he is a committed educator, a colleague of mine, and someone that is consistent about serving students that are furthest from educational justice. Thomas, do you want to share about who you are? Yeah. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Thomas. Um, and yeah, I work in the youth juvenile um, system in Washington. Um, I'm from Seattle, born and raised. I went to Garfield High School, then attended the University of Washington. And then all throughout that time, I was always in some type of educational program, uh, volunteering or teaching in some capacity. And then I went back to the University of Washington and got my teaching degree through Seattle Teacher Residency. My education, my teacher experience has been different. Um, I taught in Seattle for two years. Then I moved to Texas and taught um, on the border of Texas for two years or three years. I'm sorry. And now I'm back in Seattle teaching at uh, teaching in the Washington State uh, juvenile justice system. Thank you for sharing. So for everyone listening, we have uh, Dr. Mark Perry and our friend Thomas here, um, and they're going to be speaking with us about the school to prison pipeline. So first, let's start off and just say, how are you? Mark, do you want to start? Uh, I'm good. You know, um, the world is in crisis. The U.S. is in crisis. I'm worried. I'm concerned. I keep trying to be hopeful. Uh, I have a lot of faith in Gen Z because I think that sort of I had this sort of my own personal epiphany when um, in high school, well, in being in a high school, there were no more millennials and they were just all Gen Z's. And what I got from them is that I think they feel like they don't have a choice and that they have to do something. Um, and they're going to have to figure out what that is to be able to, you know, come up against, you know, whatever it is that they're facing from, you know, racism to climate change to, you know, attacks on democracy. And 
it's it's something I can relate to because I feel like that's what hit me when I was, you know, in my late teens and early 20s. Is like, we don't have a choice. We have to do something. And, you know, I think in those years, collectively across the spectrum, we made a difference, but we made tremendous mistakes too. But also, we didn't know everything that people know now. We didn't have an internet. We didn't have access to all this information. We didn't have 50 years of progress of people activists, uh, organizers, people struggling to try to understand things. I think we have a much deeper understanding that this younger generation is able to, you know, step into that we didn't have back then. So in that sense, I'm hopeful. Good. <laughs> That's a great term. Uh, Thomas, how are you? Good. Um, you know, the the thralls of teaching of all, are always challenging. Um, navigating the system as a person of color, it's always challenging. Um, pushing back against the the norms and the, the systematic racism and the white supremacy that you know we face on a daily basis is is tiring but it's it's the the arena that I, that I wanted to get into so that's why I'm here and you know it's a daily a daily fight but it's one that we have to confront cuz kind of like Marcus saying we don't really have a choice um we have to overcome these challenges and we have to we have to do it, if not for us, then for the people after us. Absolutely. Um, thank you all for saying that. That's amazing. To frame our discussion, I thought it'd be helpful to read a narrative from a document called Seen But Not Heard, Personal Narratives of Systemic Failure Within the School to Prison Pipeline. Um, it's a story that I think really highlights what school to prison looks like or what it looks like to be systematized, which is an experience a lot of black and brown children have. So here's the narrative. Excuse me, ma'am, we're expelling your son. Could someone translate to Mrs. Ramirez that Christian is being expelled for stealing? The school, Adams Elementary, expelled me in the middle of fourth grade. Because this expulsion occurred at so early an age, it established me as a troublemaker in all schools I attended. But worse than the label was the zero tolerance policies I was subjected to for the smallest infractions. These policies created inconsistency in school settings and caused me to feel excluded from school. I never attended one school for more than two years. I was kicked out of three elementary schools and two middle schools. After attending two high schools for one day each, I dropped out of high school. At 15, I was arrested. At 16, I learned to read. Definitely um, a narrative that highlights how far uh, behind it sets a lot of children that are systematized um, or children where there's a stigma around that. Um, and I thought it would be, like I said, helpful to frame some of the things we'll be discussing. One of the things I wanted to point out is that systematization, am I saying that right? Systematization? Systemization. Systemization. Okay. <laughs> Systemization starts in preschool. There's a, a notion that once kids are in a K-5 setting, that that's where the danger begins. But for a lot of children that are in a pre-K setting, where especially if it's a public pre-K setting, we know that quite often they already get systematized. And by the time they get to kindergarten, they already have a record. There's some kind of information that is tracing and tracking them and putting them on track to dealing with additional discipline or disproportionate discipline. Um, one question I wanted to ask you all is that for children that have already been exposed to systemization, 
or have been systemized themselves, what is their usual attitude around education? <clears throat> i take this one first. So in my experience with working with um, incarcerated youth, I feel like it's a varied attitude around education. I would say that some of the students that I serve are excellent students and some students that I serve are behind. But in general, I think a lot of the students that I serve do think that education is something that they eventually need to achieve. They just don't really know the means how to achieve that or what direction they want to go in to get that. Um, because of the system, because of what's happened to them in the past, they don't really have any supports to push them um, to help them achieve their goals. But I would say it's a varied experience. I have some I have some students that I think could absolutely go to four year colleges. And then I have some students that are learning how to read. So um, it's a very wide range of abilities. Thank you. Mark, how about for you? What would you say the attitude is around um, education for students that have been system systemized or are related to someone that's been systemized? Um, well, I think my experience is um, pretty similar to Thomas's. I think it depends on the student, uh, depends on what their journey through <clears throat> K-12 has been like. Um, I think that you know st students who are systems impacted um, are challenged in so many ways that uh, the school systems on the whole aren't set up to address. So school becomes this other separate thing. And if you miss certain blocks, like missing learning how to read when you're young uh, or missing a lot of school, or, you know, I, personally, I think we should stop expelling people from school. <laughs> you know, what, what are we doing when we're pushing them away from school? There have to be alternatives. Um, or suspending students. We'll come back in two weeks. Well, now you've just lost two weeks. And how are you going to feel about that? And I think there's a lot of ways we can address this. But eventually, I had, one of my experiences, I was in a place called Susanville Prison for a while. It was the only medium facility I was in. And um, they, because I was one of the few people who had a high school diploma, they assigned me to the prison school, which was about a 12 by 12 room. But because of the makeup of the prison and, and how racially divided it was, only uh, black prisoners and Mexican nationals would come to the school. And the person who was supposed to be running the school almost never showed up. And so I'm supposed to be like doing something here. And this is actually the first time I thought about teaching in any way, because I turned to the men who were there and said, well, what do you want to learn? I mean, we're here together. This is this is all we got. And the with the black men who were there, they fell in two categories. One is, I want to study for my GED. And the other was, I want to learn how to read and write. I want to be able to send a letter home to my mom or my girlfriend or somebody. And for the Mexican nationals who were there, who were there they wanted to... Um, learn how to speak English. So I was like, okay, we're going to teach each other. Sadly, there was so much tension in that place. We were locked down so often. We weren't able to make a lot of progress. But it was it really sort of lit a light bulb for me also of like my own learning. Once I became a teacher of this whole process of going to the students and, and asking them, what, what has worth and meaning for you? And I think the, the students who come who we see later who've been impacted by various systems, including the criminal justice system, um, 
or foster care, you know, bad foster care in particular, that having the opportunity to be in a place where people actually respect them and are asking those questions, well, where, where are you at right now? Allowing them to be able to enter it at that point and not feel bad about it is really an opening to be able to get, okay, so we need to work on some basic reading skills or you're ready to, you know, start moving on on this GED process. And what are you looking at afterwards? Let's set you up for something afterwards. Um, what are your interests? And um, yeah, so I think it's, it's, it's uh, again, I agree. I think it's different with every student, but it really comes down to the environment that we set and allowing students to have, be respected and have a voice in that process. Thank you both. That was amazing. Um, I think for me, one of the things I've witnessed with a lot of students that have either already been systemized or have family members that have been in the system is almost a trauma type of response when they think they might be disciplined, where it almost seems hyper intense for this really strong reaction, strong emotional reactions when they think they might be getting in trouble, because it almost seems like they're thinking of the last association they had with that experience and how destructive it was. And I'm thinking specifically because, like I said, I'm a, an elementary school teacher. So I'm thinking about how elementary age students react when they think there's a possibility of getting in trouble if, if they've already had a really negative experience with, quote unquote, getting in trouble or having a record or being close to someone that has a record. The reaction gets so strong. Sometimes it takes a whole day to de-escalate these children because they are so terrified of what they think could be coming based on what they've seen happen to other people or what has personally happened to them. And it, like I said, it's not even always that they are in trouble. They just, it's just the notion of possibly getting in trouble or a, a phone call home, you know, sometimes can really ruin the whole day uh, for a lot of students. So um, like I said, I mean, I'm not a counselor or a mental health therapist, but it, it reminds me of a trauma-based response where the reaction sometimes doesn't even match the situation because you can see them calling on something that happened before and, and getting upset about that. So um, I know, like you both said, that the, the attitude depends on the individual, but I also know that um, systemically speaking, a lot of children are thinking kind of a historical memory, right? Like calling on experiences they've seen with other people, and that's informing their attitude on education. I would also say onto that, that some of those same emotional responses are like stick with them and they carry them as, as they become young people and adults, and it doesn't just disappear. So I agree with what you're saying, and um, teaching in this, this youth system, I see some of those same responses that I would expect to see from elementary school, but because that they're older now, those responses can be more volatile because they're bigger and stronger mm. and know how to try to work their angles. So it's, 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 it's interesting for sure. Yeah. And thinking about, even though they're having very human reactions, you know, how people might see them as a danger, as a threat, you know, when they're crying or when they're getting emotional, or sometimes they might be using their bodies to express their frustration or their fear and how other people are interpreting that, you know, um, that can definitely be very 
dangerous for the person, even though they're being human. <laughs> what do you personally do as educators to support students that show trauma from systemization? Let's start with Mark this time, since Thomas started last time. That's a huge question. Yeah. Um, I think that, wow. <clears throat> I think there's the, 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 well, I think there's working with students, working with families, uh, and then there's the systems that we exist in to be able to do that or who hinder or that hinder our ability to do that. And um, the, I think on the, the student side, it, it really comes down to relationships, you know, building relationships with students, building trust, getting to know them, them getting to know us. Really, it, it, to me, it goes back to the question of worth and meaning. If they feel like there's worth and meaning happening at school for them, they're going to be attending school. They're going to be wanting to engage in school. And I think this, the, the other side of it, unfortunately, and I think <clears throat> sometimes we, we, we look at the symptoms rather than the sort of root causes. And, you know, really being able to be explicit that it's a system built on anti-Black racism. And the school-to-prison pipeline actually is successful at what it, it's, it was set up for. And to be able to disrupt it and dismantle it is more than just working with an individual student. So I think we have those two things are balancing back and forth. And I, maybe we should talk about them separately or maybe we should talk about them together. But I think we can't talk about one without talking about the other. Yeah. Thomas, how about for you? What moves do you do as an educator? Yeah, I mean, this sounds very... Uh teacher-like, but also just meeting them where they are. <clears throat> and then also understanding that the general sense of trauma can be, like trauma can be different for every every individual student. And it's important not to just mm -hmm. put a general swath of, oh, you are a trauma student, so I'm going to treat you this specific way. Now, every student is different in that they bring their own uniqueness to building that relationship and what they need from you and what you need from them and really understanding how to make that balance for them so it could work for them. But I also agree with what Mark Perry is saying too, because it is a system. There, There's a system aspect to it. Um, and it's like we, you know, have individual students and then we have, unfortunately, the successful system of the prison, the pipeline that, that we currently have. And how do we dismantle that while also serving our students to the best of our ability? Thank you, Thomas. I'm hearing that there's the the first focusing on the student as an individual, knowing them as individuals and recognizing them as individuals, right? But also identifying the systemic barriers and and making the conscious effort to push against those things. And that's happen, happening simultaneously um, from what I hear from both of you, really focusing on relationships for for the kids and the families, but also recognizing that there is a lot that needs to be changed. Right, I, I call it the solutions based. We also we can we've identified an issue. The data shows that that the results, the disparities in achievement, have not changed in the last five or six decades. Um, we have you know we have a lot of data. I mean, stark ones like you know a black male child born today has a one in three chance of being incarcerated. Mm. You know, and that's like, that should shock anyone. So when we know that, where do, where do we intervene? I mean, one of the things I think about the school to prison pipeline um, 
is that, and you mentioned this in, in, in the beginning, that, you know, it, it's preschool is a place where, you know, or before they get to K-12, a lot of students are already impacted and are on this pipeline, whether we've been able to identify it or not. And then we have K-12, but anyone who gets involved in the system, it carries with you literally your entire life. Um, people who do get incarcerated, once they get out, there's a whole, I mean, there's hundreds of different barriers that are set up. Some that are policy, depends on who your, you know, your parole officer is. You, you can't live certain places. You can't have certain jobs. You can get violated for things that aren't even crimes and sent back to prison. So it carries with you or just getting a job when your employer says, well, you know, you're, you're a great candidate. Uh, what about this question about, uh, you know, do you have any felony convictions? And you're like, uh, yeah, I do. And all of a sudden it changes. It's like, well, you know, I wish you the best, but uh, it's not going to be at our place right here. So I forget where we started that, but, you know, just, yeah. just that, you know it's, it's something, it's a continuum that, mm-hmm. oh, I know what I was going to say, is that I think that K-12 education is, this is the place where we can actually disrupt and dismantle this thing because they're with us for 12, 13 years, uh, hopefully that long. Um and, you know, as educators in the system, if we can begin to identify, first identify the students to be able, and then provide the resources and supports, but also change the curriculum. So what we teach, how we teach and how we assess is different. It does not produce the same results that we're getting right now. And if we don't change those three things, we're going to continue to get the same results, even when we offer resources and offer support. Um, and I think, again, that's the balance between working with students, you know, one-on-one or in small groups, in a community, and the system that they're tied into. And I think Ibram Kendi actually, I think, says it the best in terms of the assessment piece, is if we keep getting the same results, either there's something wrong with the assessments or there's something wrong with the students. And we know it's not the students, so it has to be the assessments. I think we have to look at how we teach the same way and we have to look at what we teach the same way. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you saying that because I don't think all educators are aware that there's nothing wrong with the students. I've heard thinking or people saying stuff out loud where it's like, it's not my fault that they can't pass. And it's like, actually, <laughs> you know, let's talk about what kind of assessments you're giving kids right. and 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 why, you know, why are you giving that assessment? What does it even mean to them? But I, I think about some of the things I've done. So I think in my own experience, of course, and I know for all three of us as educators, we've been vocal and outspoken about changes that we think systemically need to happen. Um, and I think some of the work that I've done has been a little more passive. Um, I was working at a school where we were trying to track data of uh, disciplinary data, basically identifying times of the day when students were getting disciplined most, certain days of the week when students were getting disciplined most, what the disciplinary issues were. Um, and in order to do that, they wanted us every time a disciplinary moment happened to document it in the school database. So if a student's asked to leave or go down to the front office, you know, to take a break, I'm supposed to put it in their record that I sent them down because of XYZ infraction. And um, I understand the rationale for why they wanted that data. But the problem is that that data doesn't go away just when they leave elementary school. And so when I 
put that down and, you know, so-and-so is talking out of turn again. You need to go take a break or whatever. I'm just seeing it as so-and-so is just needing a minute. And the problem is that when people who don't know this child see those records, they might see it differently. So when we're thinking about them getting to middle school and people looking at their record before they've even had a chance to meet this child, right? And it's very, elementary is very different from middle school because middle school, you you might only have one class with a teacher. There's not as much time to build that relationship and the dynamic is very different. Whereas with elementary school, you know, I'm with them all day, every day for the whole school year. I get more of an opportunity to build a a stronger relationship with them faster. Whereas in middle school and high school, it takes a little bit longer. And the issue with that is the record they see right away. They see the record before they see the child. And I made a a passive decision where I was just like, oh, I'm not doing that. (laughs) I didn't argue with the principal or anything. I just didn't. So they would get mad at me because I would send a child down and they're like, it's not in the database. And I was like, oh, I forgot how to do that. Like, oh, I'm sorry. I don't know what you mean. Like, can you show me how to do that again? Can you give us another training on that? Then the training that you gave us, you know, I know you're not going to have time for another six months, but can you put that in and train us again? You know, and I, I, I knew that it was going to be an uphill battle to tell them flat out, no, I'm not going to do it, but I just didn't do it. <laughs> and I know there were other teachers who were more vocal about it. Like, no, I'm not doing that, you know, but I just, I think that there were certain things where I I refused to systemize my students that way. This is this is so interesting to me because it connects back up to what we were talking about. You're talking about a record. So when someone leaves the K-12 system or someone who gets convicted of something or is incarcerated, I mean, there's over 77 million adults over the age of 18 who have criminal records in the United wow. States. And that record follows you forever. I hadn't thought about like, the record from first grade or second grade or fourth grade, you know, following a student that way where someone just looks at the record and go, oh, we, we've got a kid who's a troublemaker here. We got a kid who, you know, what, whatever, the, you know, biases that they have to judge somebody quickly. Same for someone who's been incarcerated or who has a criminal record. People have these assumptions. Oh, you did something wrong. What did you do? Well, that's not the point. <laughs> yeah, judging a person for who they are and as adults, it's a little different than, you know, for young kids. But still, I haven't thought about the surveillance state and that idea of having a record that follows you. One interesting thing about that now is that now that we have technology to track records and share records easier, I have students that are older, almost 18, and have referral records from when they were in first grade um, all the way through their educational experience. As technology has improved the systematic racism has also improved by ensuring students' records can be can travel with them throughout wherever they're from. You know, from it can be from any other state. They will get to where they're intended to go. So that's crazy. Heartbreaking and frustrating um, for those of us who see the path they're setting children on, whether it's intentional or not, right? And the next question I was going to ask feeds directly into this, which is, what role does white supremacy play in the school-to-prison pipeline? Let's start with Thomas, since Mark started last time. What do you think, Thomas? Yeah, I was thinking about this question, and one thing that I wanted to say was white supremacy is, is kind of ingrained in our culture, and it's kind of a standard norm that we tend to follow as a society. And <clears throat> when we get to school, um, students begin to notice, especially kids of color, they begin to notice 
how they're getting treated differently if they're in disparate situations. Um, there is an incident that just happened a couple days ago in New Jersey, and this just popped in my head because of this. And there was two students fighting in a mall, one black teen that was in eighth grade, one white teen that was in ninth grade. And they were both fighting, which was inappropriate at the time. Um, but the cops came and broke up the fight and ended up tackling the black student um, and arresting him on the floor while the white student stood over him and over the cops which is supposed to be unsafe, according to cop protocol. You're not supposed to have another person standing over you, let alone a person that was in a fight. And so the, how they treated that student, that Black child, was a reflection of how society, see, uh, the United States tends to treat our Black and brown children. Um, so when it comes to white supremacy in school, um, some of those same things happen. We're supposed to have guidelines and rule books on disciplinary procedures, but they always tend to change when it comes to uh, student research, certain students with different resources or students that have parents that advocate for themselves. So, yeah, it's interesting because the rule book always seems to differentiate when it comes to white supremacy and how it plays out in the school to prison pipeline. Thank you, Thomas. Um, Mark, how about for you? What do you think about the way, or I should say, what roles does white supremacy play in the school-to-prison pipeline to you? Um, well, I can't add a whole lot more to that. That, that. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it is the system. And um, the, boy, I think in the media over the last few years, there have been a number of examples like the one in New Jersey. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, we, we can look at, again, I think it goes back to the thing of like symptoms versus uh, root causes and like having police in schools. Um, it's for what purpose? And, you know, I, and I, I've heard people argue for the need for them. <laughs> um, but then we have example after example of, of police who, I mean, they're literally arresting kindergarten students and first and second grade students. Um, and as educators, we can't let that happen. You know, it, it's, it's our silence um, perpetuates it. And I guess that silence is part of, you know, what white supremacy does. It allows this kind of harm and trauma to take place. And like the example that you gave, Thomas, what is that white kid thinking at that point? You know, and I, and I think that, you know, one, one of the places that, in, at least in the Seattle public schools, it doesn't get talked about is how are we educating, like in the predominantly white schools, how are we talking about this? Are we really getting down and dirty <laughs> and, you know, being truthful uh, about what, you know, real life is all about here so that white students can begin to come to their own understandings of their place in this society? Uh, and the responsibilities that that brings with it. Um, and it needs teachers and it needs administrators who have that kind of vision too. Uh, and this can be part of the school culture. It can be part of the everyday curriculum. So the students are discussing and debating these things and then creating communities where people are willing to challenge each other in, in, in ways that move things forward. And say, oh well, yeah, we're moving this forward here. I'm not just blasting some person to blast them, but we want a community that's safe and respect, respectful for everyone 
So how do we do that within the community we have right here? And you know, part of that curricular, like part of it's ethnic studies. It's a lot of a lot of other things. But really, I think for you know for white students also addressing anti-racism. What is it? Um, and you know, what are you just going to stand back and watch it? You know, I mean, not that this kid should say throw me on the ground too, <laughs> but it's like don't throw this other kid on the ground. What are you doing? We had a fight. Yeah. Okay. Cool. We we can resolve this. Or maybe we can't resolve this. We need an arbiter or we need some kind of restorative justice or we need a circle. We need something. We don't need what happened there. One thing that stands out to me about what we were saying in our last for the last question, we were talking about um, this idea of like worshiping the written word. You know, it has to be documented. It has to be written. You can't just be knowledgeable. You have to have a degree. You can't just um, discipline a child. There has to be a record or it didn't happen. Um, you know, can you explain your thinking? Can you give evidence? Can you, you know, and I understand that it's important for us as educators to be able to support our thinking and 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 stand behind what we do, but also this obsession with documentation, this obsession with how many degrees do you have, this obs- obsession with the way things look and the way there has to be some kind of evidence or proof or else it's not real. That's not the way everyone identifies culturally. Um, and when I think about like white supremacy or um, white, white supremacy norms um, and, and how harmful that can be in addition to this either or thinking, you know, did you follow the curriculum or not? The curriculum says this, did you do it or not? Um, if you didn't do it, then it's automatically wrong, no matter how, good it is for your students or how much you differentiated or, you know, you pulled small groups, the curriculum didn't call for that, but you didn't follow the curriculum. So based on the evaluation they're giving you, it it, it doesn't fit in the box, this very black and white way of thinking of things. And, and we know that human beings <laughs> are not black and white creatures. They, we are all some shade of gray. We might need more support in one space. We might be really well-behaved one day and act in a fool the next. Does that mean that I need to have a record? Does it have to be documented or written all the time? Not necessarily. You know. So when I think about this obsession and white supremacy of, of the written word and the curriculum and the degrees and everything like that, it, it becomes frustrating because it disqualifies so many people that have the ability to do, both the educators as well as the students. They didn't write it down the way they're supposed to write it, or they didn't explain it the way I want them to explain it, so I'm not giving them credit for the response. I see so much of that, and I think that that really creates a barrier for um, opportunities that could be much more meaningful for students and families. Yeah, I agree. I just What you're saying is super real. All the barriers that are created through our traditional systems can be very stifling. Yeah, and it, it raises the question: How? What? What? What's the strategy to be able to take it on, where individual educators or teachers or school administrators aren't getting, you know, dinged for it, but communities of educators can step up? And you know, what role is there for students in this also, to be able to, you know, have a voice in what's going on? So that when we see the barriers, uh, we can name it and begin to do something about it. One interesting thing, too, is in um, <clears throat> in, high, in tech jobs, they recently removed barriers for uh, access to different coding jobs. So they no longer require a four year 
degrees. Um, and that happens to be an affluent, predominantly dominated white and Asian job. So it's interesting how barriers can be changed and adapted based on the community being served. And then we can't change our rules to, to adopt our community to what, to what we need it to be. Which raises, I, this is this is all very fascinating to me because, okay, what you're saying is absolutely right because things change over time depending on generations, what what the state of the country is, what the state of the world is, what the state of the economy is. Um, why is it that education is so stuck right now? And there are so many, I mean, there's we could name a lot of problems, but there, I think most people go into education going to education, K-12 education in particular, for positive reasons. I want to be able to make a difference. Um, not everybody, but most people. <laughs> and yet, once they get into the system, it, it's very hard to, like you were saying, Maria, it, it, you know, when, when a, a principal says to you, well, why didn't you document that? I don't see on the record here that you, you know, this student has been sent to me twice. Why should I? What's the point? You know, uh, I'm actually doing more harm by doing that. If I know the student, if collectively we know the student, if the community takes responsibility for the student, the student may have challenges. Yes. But let's come up with a plan, you know, of what we're going to do about that rather than because that's the student who's going to get left behind. That's the student who, you know, is, is, is going to start feeling like, well, I'm, you know, I'm not as smart as everybody else or, you know, in terms of the school to prison pipeline, uh, and this, this is jumping slightly to a different topic, but, you know, students who have incarcerated parents or who have close family members who are incarcerated, if, if I'm a nine-year-old and I just went to visit my mom or my dad over the weekend, I might not be in the best emotional shape when I come back on Monday. And if the school's not cognizant of this, if there isn't somebody there, say someone who, uh, when they were younger, they were, you know, they had an incarcerated parent. And the students know that this is somebody I can talk to, or I, I will go to that student. The person will go to that student saying, you know, hey, you know, I know that you were visiting, you, you know, you were going to visit this, your mom this weekend. How are you doing? You know, how was it? Do you want some time to just, you know, talk or you find going back to class today? And then in the school culture, making sure that other students are supportive of that, you know, and there, there's privacy things and, you know, stuff like that. But if we have a culture Given that we have 77 million people have criminal records, this is not an exception about people being involved in the criminal justice system. 25% of all people incarcerated are in the United States. So that in schools, why can't we address this? You know, why can't we, you know, even just ask families, ask kids? Uh, when you talk about rules, discipline rules, one of the things I struggled with as a principal is that um, if a parent wants to volunteer, they have to do a watch check. And it comes back to you have a criminal record or not. And what I found is that most principals, when they see there's a criminal record, it doesn't matter what it was because you have to write something about what it was. Um, they exclude them from the school. And I say, why? Why? There's no rule that says we have to exclude somebody. The rule is that we look at that. And if we feel like we need to talk with a person, we talk with them and then we make a decision. Why are we immediately excluding? It's because we're just covering our own butts. That's all we're doing, you know? And what is the kid going to feel like? Well, my dad can't come here. 
you know, and then the other kids are like, oh, your dad's a criminal or your dad was in prison or making fun of them for some reason, whatever goes on, you know, amongst kids. Uh, but creating a culture of like, yes, this is, this is, it's not unusual. It doesn't mean it's a good thing that we have this, you know, this mass incarceration system, but it's a reality. And that doesn't mean somebody is a bad person. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't be part of our lives here, all of our lives. I mean, I met some of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my life in prison. They changed my life, literally changed my life um, because of their brilliance and their willingness to reach out, you know, and teach and, you know, touch me in a way that was like, wow, this is like, I never would have had that experience. Otherwise, I believe, you know, I don't think anybody should have to go to prison to get that experience. But why can't we replicate those kind of things in schools? K-12, it's like, we're together for all these years. <laughs> you know, we should be able to make a bigger difference. But I guess it goes back, what, what do we need to do to be able to make more of a difference rather than just sort of, we, a lot of people are trying different things, doing good things, but it doesn't seem to be impacting the system. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that I hear you talking about both you and Thomas, is this idea of power hoarding that's so common in white supremacy cultural norms where the school is the one with all the power. And perhaps there is a parent or perhaps there is a, a child that may have a past and it is deemed that they are not worthy of having any power in this situation because uh, of something that has happened in the past. And I think that is a huge sign of white supremacy cultural norms that schools feel it is their it is their responsibility to dole out power to families and to children. Um, when in reality, like if we're thinking of a business dynamic, there are customers, right? We're supposed to be serving them. <laughs> Whereas in in that dynamic, when when things do become systemized it's almost like the dynamic is flipped and suddenly they have to dance however we say dance and they have to kind of beg and plead for just a little crumb of something because of something that's happened in the past. Like they're no longer worthy of getting the same service that everyone else gets. True. If I could just add one other thing that I think it's not just at the school level. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, what I experienced as a teacher and as a principal is that central administration in school districts has exactly that same attitude. They tell the next level below them what to do. And they're told to tell these other people what to do, who are told these other people what to do. Eventually, it gets down to a principal who's told, you have to do this, who goes to the teachers and say, you have to do this. And it, it's, it's, it's a broken system. And it is. It's exactly what, what you're saying it is. And that power hoarding starts up there at the top. Mm -hmm. Even if they talk good things, um, it's still what it is. You know, and I think that the best schools figure out a way to get around that, but it's still within a system that doesn't want you to get around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are, you know, there are consequences too. There's retribution in different places. And you try to figure out a way not to have that happen in your own school. Um, but it does. Thank you. Thomas, did you want to add anything before we move on? Yeah, I was going to say one thing, you know, that is considered a lot when I come to my principal or um, the people in charge of the facility about uh, certain specific situations is always thinking about fiscal responsibility. And um, that's where lawyers come into play. And that's a huge aspect of school that is behind the scenes that makes a lot of decisions about how 
the power dynamics play out. And a, mo- a lot of the times it's it's very unfair um, <clears throat> because, for lack of better words, a lot of school districts are just are very afraid of getting sued, becoming a part of the news cycle and um, losing their funding or money. And it's it's very unhealthy that we're t- that it's completely tied to that. Thank you both for sharing. We could go on forever, I'm sure, about white supremacy. When children become systemized, they are rarely given any space to prepare for reentry or reintegration. Why is transitional support so important for children that become systemized? Let's start with Mark. I guess the, the, the simple answer is they're not going to be able to be successful. They're not going to be able to drive their own learning, their own lives, if there isn't a process that, um, that they can embrace um, and to me, it goes back to the, the, you know, the idea of worth and meaning. Does it have worth and meaning to them? If it does, and they feel the support around them, and there's positive relationships, and there's a community, then they'll be able to, well, especially say they're on the pipeline, they may be able to get off the pipeline, may be able to find other alternatives so they don't get caught up in the system. Uh, and if they've been caught up in the system for a while, being able to get off it and moving on to another track. And without that, I mean, it reminds me of reentry from prison too. The same thing. It's um, there's a there's a phrase I heard recently that I hadn't heard before about the um, prison to the street pipeline, where people are getting out of prison, but because there's so few resources, and um, they don't necessarily have communities to go back to, within days, they are. That's one of the the largest areas that's increasing in terms of. A, people who are unhoused, the homeless population is people who are coming straight out of prison and ending up on the streets really quickly. Uh, it's, it's critical. And, and I mean, it's, it's, I think goes with what you were saying, Tom, is also about when we look at fiscal, what are the priorities? Where should the money go? And, you know, at a local level, in a, in a school itself, in a school district, but also nationally, how much money do we put into reentry for people being incarcerated? From the government side, very little. And, you know, in terms of school, too, it's kids who are off track, whatever that might happen to mean, or kids who are coming from challenging situations, traumatic situations. Where's the mental health support? Having facilities at the school where kids can maybe wash their clothes if they need to, because they only have one or two sets of clothes. Making sure that breakfast and lunch are available for free for everybody in the school. Um, so you're not pinpointed as somebody who needs it, you know, because every kid needs that. Make it a, a community gathering. Food is a great place to bring people together. Um, and there's other ideas, too, but, you know, being able to focus that way so that the kid doesn't feel like they're an exception, but now I'm part of a community. And my job is to move myself forward, too. Uh, and, you know, helping them feel like, I'm now driving this process with support from a lot of other people and I can begin to trust them and you know build stronger relationships. Yeah, I would say that transitional support is extremely underfunded. And in my educational experience, going through the K through twelve system, I was always in the transitional support program, um, going from fifth grade to sixth grade or going from eighth grade to ninth grade or some type of uh, summer programming. But it was never through the K-12 system, and it was always through um, a program, a local program. 
that by itself creates barriers because there's limited spots, there's limited opportunities, and th there's also a variation in, in how good the programming is. And I think that same um, play works out for when when adults are incarcerated. Transitional support is so limited that they really don't have an opportunity to truly transition out into a new space. Um, and when it comes to K-12, it's the same thing. So I think we need to get better as a society is realizing that these, these are key points where we can actually help people, help kids. Um, and we need to figure out ways to increase transitional support and support programs that are that are trying to increase their transitional support in the community and potentially keep them separate um, from like traditional K-12 systems so they can have that agency and have different people come in to speak to kids and have different people um, not be stifled by the barriers that our K-12 system does create. Well, I think when, you know, when, when public education started, schools were seen as community centers where you bring people in. Even in, in Seattle, the big buildings like the Man Building and I forget what the name of the building where um, El Centro is located. Uh, that's another one. There are like six or seven of these that were built in the early 1900s, they were built as community centers. They were expected to be used all day long. Yeah, well, boy, I tell you, there's, there's, this is so deep in so many ways. You're talking about you know, the services that could be there, should be there, even when they are there. So the three of us have all gone up to Monroe Prison as educators and met with the Black Prisoners Caucus. That entire program has been shut down and everybody's been moved out to other prisons. And, but it was, it was the one prison that had half the programming in the entire state and had about 60% of all the volunteers. And, and the reason I say it is that in that way is that when people look at data about who's successful in coming out of prison, there's a direct correlation between the amount of programming that they were able to access and how successful they are. So people who are recidivizing, if that's a word, uh, very quickly, and like 60% of people are back in within three years who are in their first or second offenses, um, they're not getting the programming. But And I don't remember the data on this, but for every year of post-secondary schooling that one gets within a prison knocks off a huge percentage of whether or not they're going to recidivate when they get out, if they're going to be successful when they get out. So people who have college degrees the recidivism rate is in the single digits. So why don't we put money there? Why don't we focus on that? Um, and here in Washington State, they just cut out all of that programming. One of the things I wanted to discuss or mention is that the restorative justice model is one that is not consistently used in educational systems, but is really important um, because there are five kinds of disciplinary action that can be taken in a school. You can be in-house suspended. You can be suspended out of school. You can be expelled. You can be placed into an interim program, or you can have a hearing where you are placed permanently into another facility, usually for students who have IEPs. And I think one of the issues is that black and brown children have an alarmingly high rate of being suspended out of school. Um, meaning that they're removed from the building indefinitely or getting expelled. And that's really damaging to 
the trust and the relationship that they have both with whoever the educators were that they were contacting, but also just the educational system. And if there's not some kind of restorative work done to heal that dynamic, or at least make an attempt to heal so that they both have an opportunity to hear each other, both the child that was involved, as well as the educator that's involved, it causes distrust on both sides. It's hard for us as educators because we're human, right? It's hard for us to continue supporting a child when we feel that something is wrong or something has been done and the conversation hasn't happened. There's this big elephant in the room. So this child gets suspended, they disappear. And sometimes as teachers, especially if it doesn't happen in our classroom, you hear about it after the fact, but you're supposed to be the one, like the point of contact regarding this issue that you know nothing about. Right. And and so you kind of feel this distrust from everybody. Like, I know for me, I'm, I don't trust anybody when that kind of stuff happens, because the kids telling you one story, the principal's telling you another story. And I feel like we need to have a conversation, <laughs> you know, and quite often that's not what happens. The, the kid is removed from the school. And they come back a week or two later and they're supposed to be brand new. And it's like, how? We haven't addressed it. Nothing has happened. There's been no restorative work for the child to have an opportunity to reflect on what happened and what their role was, whether something was in their control or not in their control, whether there was a misunderstanding, how we can get the trust from the families back because families lose trust when those kinds of things happen. Like I'm sending my baby to you and this is what happens. You know, there has to be work around those relationships that you both have mentioned, maintaining and sustaining those relationships, you know, and it's not happening. And I think that in order for what you all are talking about, like, I just feel like restorative justice is such a big part of that. It's true. <laughs> I, I, I'll say that I think that the part of the challenge is that it's really hard to do. It takes capacity. It takes people who are trained, who know how to do it. Um, there was, I think it was about four years ago, Seattle Public Schools, at least at the high school level, allocated money to be able to begin implementing some of it in the high schools. And the first barrier was that you could only contract with these companies that they had approved. And at our school, we had a community person who does restorative justice in circles and we wanted to hire her with the money that they allocated to us and they wouldn't let us do it. Um, we fought it and we finally won, but most schools aren't going to do that. And it, it's, but then we found, so she trained all of our staff on how to do circles to start out with where people could have these discussions and stuff. And then she led circles and she led some restorative justice type circles for us. But um, it was really, really hard. And I feel like we, there's so much going on in a school to begin with that I, I guess I'm at the point where you have to have people who can do this on short notice, who are well-trained, experienced, have the knowledge, have the trust of other people and could facilitate these types of restorative circles because sometimes they, they take they take hours and then you have to come back to it and you have to bring people in and people get upset and you have to take a break and to be able to overlay that on a system I don't think works well it didn't work that well for us it has to come it has to be built into the system and that takes a huge commitment 
well, within a school district, I think it takes a district commitment. It takes um, it takes money because you have to have people who can do that. And you have to have buy-in in the school also, which takes training and discussions and their own circles. So we would have staff circles. Uh, our advisory groups would have circles with teachers. And um, we were training students to also lead circles. But it wasn't enough. And uh, it was really a capacity was a huge issue. So, What have you seen um, of the impacts that COVID has had in the school to prison pipeline? Um, the silence around contacting kids that are identified as struggling students. Often when they when the contact were required to contact students that were challenging, we just let them fall through the cracks. And um, I work directly with students that have gone through that. <clears throat> students that haven't um, had consistent education in two years. They haven't had people trying to figure out where they're at and what they're doing um, and just allowing them to not attend school. I think there's silence around it and it's not really identified. I would not put the blame on the parents or the students or some educators. I think it's a system pro- problem um, in districts because they haven't had to require attendance in the same way, haven't put intention around ensuring that all their kids are contacted and are receiving some baseline level of education. Yeah, uh, I'm not consistently in a school every day right now, but um, the story that you're telling, it's not a story, the truth that you're telling, <laughs> I've heard from so many other educators. And um I was still in Seattle Public Schools at the beginning of COVID. Uh, up till today, I feel like, you know, from a district side, they're not asking those questions that you're putting out there. And essentially, it's this too will pass. We'll get back to normal. Uh, we're not going to have to worry about it anymore. And it hasn't worked. And this was such an opportunity during COVID to relook at what we're doing to relook at who's successful, who hasn't been successful, and what does success actually mean? And yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm sort of, you know, sort of flummoxed, if that's the right word, by, wow, we're just beginning to see the impact of COVID on students, students who haven't been in school, literally haven't been in school, and even ones who, quote, have been in school <laughs> are impacted highly by this. And uh, what is it, <clears throat> what is it going to mean in two, three, four, or five years? Or how do they carry this with them into adolescence, the younger kids? And I, I, I don't know. I think, I mean, I hope that we stay on top of it. I hope that we're able to learn something from it. But if Seattle Public Schools is an example, uh, as a system, this system is not learning. Um, hopefully there's other schools and other districts um, that are learning and some of it can be translated back. But but I haven't even seen anything written that says, yeah, this, this is a good direction to go next. Although I, I actually, I'll tell you one example I just read the other day in the LA Times is LA Unified. And I don't even know if this is a good example, but they're requiring that all kids be vaccinated in the fall right now. It probably won't hold up with the Supreme Court, but they're requiring it. And they have a huge, I mean, they have hundreds of thousands of students, what is it, 600, 800,000 students. And so they just decided to set up six virtual schools with up to 2,500 students in each school, every school with a, with a different theme. And I thought, you know, I, I applaud them for at least putting that out there. <laughs> you know, maybe they said this is for students who either can't attend school 
or can only attend, you know, part-time to school, or for whatever reason, are not going to be in the physical building. Um, but where's that imagination here? Where's that imagination in most school districts? If Unless we imagine what a future could look like, imagine something different than, again, a system based in, totally rooted in anti-Black racism, you know, we're not going to be able to make the kind of changes that need to be made. So, yeah, just putting that out there as an idea, I have no clue whether it's going to be successful. But I thought, cool, at least it's something. It's something to work with. Thank you both. I know that when COVID started, um, it became really dangerous for a lot of students that saw the schoolhouse as a safe haven. You know, a lot of students, a lot of kids, teens um, that might not have stable living environments um, or might not have consistent ways of uh, obtaining food um, or just a place to be safe all day. Um, Not having that when school was closed became very, very challenging for a lot of people. And um, I think it became really difficult to stay engaged in the learning because their basic survival needs weren't being met, right? But because of this obsession that we talk about with the written word, you know, this obsession with certain white supremacist or white supremacy cultural norms, they care more about the fact that kids didn't show up on time to class or, you know, they didn't turn in their homework. And it's like, this kid is dying. You don't know what some of these kids are going through when they're not online, you know, or how hard it is for them to get online. Um, and, and having access to the learning is sometimes the last thing from their minds as far as COVID goes. Um, thank you both for sharing on that. And our last question is going to be about what moves can teachers make in these settings to interrupt this process? And the settings that we're talking about are preschool, elementary school, middle school, high school, the district. What moves can teachers make? Let's start with um, Mark and then we'll go to Thomas. I have a whole list of things that I think we can do. And I mean, I think one of the big ones is uh, third and fourth grade reading. That in education, we know that if a student is not on track by fourth grade, their chances of graduating are on a downward slope. Um, And why can't we solve that? Why can't we put the resources there? That, um, again, Seattle Public Schools is an example. The the percentage of students who are not there, and it totally breaks down by race and socioeconomics, it's the same data every single year. What are we not doing? (laughs) Or what are we doing that just just reinforces that and we get the same results every time. It's like that going crazy thing. Keep doing the same thing over and over again. You're going to get the same results. But even when we change reading programs, we're getting the same results. So I think that's a huge one that if every child, to me, that should be the goal. Every child is reading, uh, you know, at grade level or above when they start fourth grade, no exceptions. And we should be held accountable to that. At this point, there seems to be no accountability because it hasn't changed. Um, we shouldn't be you know, arresting kids. We shouldn't be expelling kids. We shouldn't be suspending kids. We need to figure out how to do stuff in-house that keeps kids in school. Wow, there's so much more. Um, just the education of staff, having resources, uh, bringing in mental health counselors, um, training staff to be able to, uh, I don't know, work with parents, understand you know, that, that 
I'm assuming most teachers probably haven't been incarcerated. Well, you can be incarcerated and still be a teacher. It's just challenging. It's hard. <laughs> I couldn't get a teaching certificate in Illinois, but I could get one in Washington. So, you know, it sort of depends on the state that you're in. Um, but being, being able to educate and support teachers when they're working with family members and kids who have incarcerated family members to be able to support them and let them know that there's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with their parents. There's nothing wrong with their families. You know, this is part of our community together. Um, and I think the, the, the last thing I would say, it goes to the, the question of, if we're gonna have a successful school system for everybody, we have to ask that question about worth and meaning, what's worthwhile to know and experience, and then ask the other three questions that go with it, the curricular questions about what we teach, how we teach, and how we assess. Because what we're doing now is not working. We've made some progress around what we teach, at least on the high school level. There's more ethnic studies. There's more, some more variety. But how we teach hasn't changed that much. I think um, Christopher Emden's new book, Ratchedemic, goes a long way to presenting some different ideas of you know, sort of how to teach and how to reach students. But then the assessment piece, there's almost no challenge to it. It's like, oh, well, we have to give these standardized assessments. Um, we know what the results are going to be. Let's stop doing them. We need to create other kinds of assessments that truly assess learning. Um, from my perspective, it's inquiry and competency. Students, you know, when, it, when a teacher starts a class, what do we expect students to be able to know and do by the end of this class? And they should have different ways of being able to show that as long as it meets or exceeds the competencies. So I think that that root curricular issue is one of the foundations that explodes the anti-Black racist, racist systems and stru curricular structures that are there. Um, but it takes initiative and, and it takes people being able to work together and going up against district administration, which is really hard. Thanks, Mark. How about for you, Thomas? Yeah, I echo that. <clears throat> I would say also that teachers and educators and admin and uh, the, the school district needs to move from, we, I feel like we currently have a system of blame, a system of power, a system of shame, and we need to move to a more collaborative, positive system and a system of understanding. Something that I confront and challenge every day, being a black male educator, um, I'm always questioned about the things that I try. I'm told that um, that's not going to work. I don't know why you're trying it this way. I'm told that the things that I think are important for education are not relevant to my pedagogy. And I'm told that to my face. Um, it doesn't deter, but we're so focused on um, assuming that, you know, our personal way is the best way. And uh, we can so easily shame other educators or challenge other educators in negative ways instead of trying to collaborate and work together and try to understand different ways of teaching and learning. And then also improving the feedback loop from teachers to admin to the, to the big system. There is almost no way to have a legitimate collaborative conversation with, a, I'm going to call a superior, um, because they write your evaluation. They have power over you. And if you do try to have a constructive conversation, it sounds very combative at times. So I think the structures in which we communicate are challenging. But as teachers, we need to push back on it. And we need to continue to change the framework of how we operate 
and try to be more positive and collaborative and understanding in all aspects and all ways that we teach our kids, the way we treat our treat each other, and the way that we challenge the current system that's in place. So true. You're right on. Mark and Thomas, thank you so much for taking the time to answer all of these questions. And and really, this is just the surface, right? We've just scratched the surface of some of the major systemic issues and things going on with um, children and families and, and the experience they have in education. So um, I want to say thank you for that. And I hope I get a chance to talk with you both again. Thank you. It's an honor to be with both of you today. And um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank the both of you. It was it was great. Bye.